0: With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore
1: the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts,
0: April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So today's fashion history mystery question comes to us from Carolyn Cooper. She DM'd us on Instagram and asked the following, When I see these fabulous clothes at an exhibit, all I want to do is reach out and touch them. I believe clothes are meant to be experienced, touched, worn, felt. It's half the fun of it. How do y'all as fashion historians reconcile that? That's a really great question, April. It is. (laughs) And
1: I clearly remember the first time that I was taken into a museum's storage room full of all these amazing garments. And that was the thing that was like the burning question in my brain was like, how does this curator who's in front of me right now taking us around and showing us things as students, how does she not try these things on every day, all day?
0: <laughs> and it's something we've talked about on Dressed a lot. I mean, clothing is just so personable to so many of us. We all relate to it in this um, really intimate way. And so I think it is hard for us to understand why. You know what? What makes something museum worthy versus something we can wear on our bodies? And I think it's actually a very subjective <laughs> topic, or it can be. Mm-hmm. Like, what makes something museum worthy? In other words, what makes something so valuable as to require its preservation for posterity? So, what do you think?
1: Um, I would have to, you know, I, you go with your gut. You really do. And like as a curator myself, like when we get a lot of people putting forth like potential donations to us or people that are wanting to sell us things. And after a while, you just kind of know what the important pieces are, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously museum collections are going to be looking for key designers, people who are filling in the pieces of Um, fashion history, whether they be legendary names or names that we are now realizing kind of fill a puzzle piece that's missing, you know, and also condition plays a lot into what museums take in. And I would have to say that almost all fashion museums that are accepting donations now are looking for things that are in near mint quality. Um, If something is severely um, damaged, depending on the museum and how much work they want to put into it it might not make the cut
0: yeah and i think some things you know at least to yourself and i are pretty obvious about oh that that you know 1880s charles frederick worth bustle gown belongs in a museum it's <laughs> it's in an incredible collection um it's filling you know a puzzle piece of history like you said but what about pieces like um i think where the controversy stems from is when you see pieces like maybe an actress like Marissa Tomei wearing a vintage Charles James gown on the red carpet. That dress is in perfect condition. It was in wearable condition. Is it okay that she wore it on the red carpet? Right. And that is a good question. I mean, as a rule of thumb, as
1: like a curator, we try not to actually wear, even if it's something from our own personal collection, if we feel that that piece could be in a museum, we don't wear it in public, and I have a few of those pieces that I've only worn once for that very, very specific reason. So, does that kind of answer the question? You know, like
0: I mean, <laughs> it it it's, it it's just an interesting it's an interesting question because, like Carolyn said, clothes are meant to be worn. These clothes were built to be worn. Um, they weren't built to be in museum collections. So, is it? unethical to put a garment away into museum storage that may never again see the light of day. Right. Well, that wasn't always the case because
1: in the past, um, many fashion and textile costume collections actually did let the attendees of the exhibition try certain garments on.
0: Yeah. So this practice of wearing historic garments, um, we kind of touched on it in a couple episodes, Sarah Scuturo, a Costume Institute, head conservator at the Met, Metropolitan Museum. Um, we talked about how that was a practice that goes into the 60s and 70s even. And the Met's this world-class institution. So, you know, it was just kind of, I don't know, maybe museum collecting of textiles and dress. It wasn't like as professional um, a field as it is today. She talked about the increased professionalism in the field that came um, over the years. Yeah,
1: I mean, like after all this time of doing this, like when I see the garments, I don't I don't think of them any longer as things to put on. Like that desire to to dress and my body in mm-hmm. them as beautiful as they are, it just doesn't happen anymore because I think of them as something completely different. They are these rarefied like objects that need to be protected and preserved. And there's a lot of like different layers of um, steps of preservation that that goes into that. And I think, I think once you enter the field and you're not just like gobsmacked about the intense beauty of some of these things and you're like, oh, your first inclination is like, I want to put that on. Like, I think it goes away after a while once you realize their bigger cultural significance that's outside of yourself. Yeah. But I want to ask you about this because you have very personal relationships you have worked as um a collections manager for somebody that had a massive personal collection and you're essentially kind of like doing this as a one woman show so what was your relationship with all those objects that you were constantly unpacking and cataloging i mean sheer joy and
0: exhilaration <laughs>
1: get text messages (laughs) from you and be like, I just unpacked this box today. You're never going to believe what was in it. And you're like, send me photos.
0: I know. Well, the beauty of that collection was it was a, it's a personal collection. So it's someone who was collecting these with the intention of one day exhibiting them, you know, researching them. And she really had no bounds to what she, you know, what her interests were. She had things from all over the world. So, you know, I'm opening Japanese shibori from the 18th and 19th centuries. Which is a tie-dyeing technique we should. Yes, yes. And we will do an episode on that, Mm -hmm. I should say. (laughs) Um, And then one of my favorite things was this 18th century mantua, a uh, woman's mantua with, um, you know, the wide pantied hips, and it was made out of Chinese silk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was just this broad range. And my instinct, because I had just come out of grad school, was to preserve and protect these garments in the best way possible. So yeah, you really do kind of change um, your perspective. Although I should say the irony of my personal style is that I, I'm i not fashionable at all. I That's should not true. <laughs> um, well, I'm not in fashion. You know, there's a timeless argument of fashion versus style, although I wouldn't call myself stylish necessarily. But I do have a um, per- quite extensive collection of family heirloom jewelry that I wear. And personally, in relation to that jewelry, I feel honored to wear it mm-hmm. and I want to wear it. And, you know, in my family, we have this $100,000 diamond ring that's been passed down through generations and nobody can wear it. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's in a safety deposit box. So, what's the point of that? But I do think the point of museum collections is to preserve these garments for future generations um, so that they exist. To remind us of the people who made them, the people who wore them, right, and well, to tell these stories. And that is absolutely essential. Now, the other side of that is people who wear vintage, right?
1: Yeah. Well, which is me practically every day. Yes. <laughs> so the, so there is there is a very real distinction between wearing some of the pieces that I do own that I've only ever worn once and I would never ever ever wear again and the things that I do wear every day and for me that is that is all about sustainability so there is yes. there are so many clothes that exist in the world from the past that just about anybody who would like to take part in like wearing like mainly or only vintage you can if you really want to
0: yeah, and you and I are obviously big fans of upcycling. We've talked about it um, and touched on it repeatedly throughout the season. And vintage fashion is a very big part of that. And um, there's a lot of really great vintage dealers. I know uh, Cherie of Shrimpton Couture is one of my absolute favorites. And she specializes in vintage haute couture pieces. So yeah. really high-end special pieces. But these, these pieces are in a shape to be worn, yeah. And if you're going to take care of them properly, I think that it is okay to wear them. I agree. And, and depending. I, depending.
1: <laughs> right.
0: It's all depending.
1: Um, but also, too, like we see a lot of actresses um, wearing vintage on the red carpet these days, which I think is great. I think it's wonderful. Not only is their um, celebrity star status bringing attention to, Um, sustainability in terms of wearing vintage, it's also bringing attention to some of these designers whose names may or may not be familiar to the
0: public. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously not every garment can make it into a museum collection, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have people like um, Colleen Darnell, one of our favorite guests, um, vintage Egyptologist who wears exclusively 1920s clothes And, I mean, she's wearing it in a very um, exquisite manner, as we always say, but she also is, you know, taking care of her garments and really respects that clothing um, in a way that I think is absolutely essential if you're going to be wearing um, pieces that are that old.
1: And, And this kind of leads us to another question that we've gotten from a lot of our listeners who maybe have family heirlooms, which is, how do I best take care of some of these things? So, Cass, what do you think about us doing just like some like basic tips of if you have a vintage item of clothing, what are like the top five things that you should do to
0: take care of it and like, and preserve it? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the first things is to to not do would be, I think the whole mothball. Let's no. debunk the mothball. No. The mothball myth. Nope. <laughs> Don't do it do not use mothballs. They do not work. No. That was one of the first things we learned, I learned in grad school that I was shocked about was like, how do you protect your garments from bugs? Okay. Well, one of the other very first things that I would have to say is
1: that sunlight, light in general, is your enemy. So whether that be for garments, maybe less so garments than other things that or textiles that might Mm -hmm. likely be sitting in a window type area, Mm -hmm. like antique lace or antique linens, like sun will do damage
0: in a matter of a few years. Or even less. I bought a 1950s dress, wool dress, and I think it was in the sun for a month on one shoulder and it faded. Yeah. Yeah. So So no sun. Very sensitive. No No sun. sun. What's your next one? Well, I think um, one important factor is the environment, obviously, is clearly um, beneficial in keeping your garments safe. A lot of people, you know, preserve things in chests and drawers. And I actually have my great-grandmother's wedding dress from 1917, 1918. And you can purchase museum-quality blue boxes. Archival boxes. Thank you, April. Archival boxes with acid-free paper that will protect your garment.
1: And I can tell you a few purveyors of this because I do this all the time at work every day. Um, If you're interested in looking at some of these boxes, you can look at universityproducts.com. You can look at gaylordarchival.com and also TALAS, T-A-L-A-S. Those are like the top, kind of the top three for finding that type of acid-free archival boxes for whatever it may be. Um maybe not necessarily. I mean they do have garment boxes, but but if you have shoes, if you have bags, if you have family records, that's that's the go-to for like those sort of acid-free um archival products to take care of your
0: own collection. Because tissue paper that say you bought at the store that you would like wrap presents with is not, not the acid-free. Same thing. <laughs> um so eventually that will transfer into the garment um and damage it. Um, over time. And this acid-free paper, you can really buy in a lot of sheets and you can use it to not only protect and cover the garment, but you can use it to pad the garment and help prevent creasing. So there's really a lot of different ways that that can be beneficial in preserving your your family heirloom.
1: Yeah. And um, one last thing that I would say is um, hangers maybe not always your best bet. So as museum professionals, one of the things that we do when we're going to have a garment that is actually going to live for quite a long time on a hanger mm-hmm. is we wrap it in batting. We wrap the hanger in batting and then we cover it with this thing called stockinette, which is like also an acid-free like knit tubing. Um, and that provides a little bit of like slope to the hanger that's not so harsh underneath, whether it be wood or plastic or whatever, and it and it kind of like pads out whatever that that stress point is in the garment. And the, the last thing that I have to say is that if you have something that's like a wedding dress, or if you have something that's like a 1920s gown that has beads or embroidery or sequins on it, it should not be hanging. It needs to be stored flat in a box. In a garment box, like Cass was referring to, her great-grandmother's wedding dress being in. Like, it needs to be flat. Those types of, like, really delicate um, materials, they just can't take the gravity over time. So they need to be flat.
0: Yeah, and um, another thing that I thought of, too, if you, if you don't get the archival paper, you can get unbleached muslin cloth, mm-hmm. um, which is usually a dollar a yard from Joanne's, wash it, and you can use that as well to store... Um, That's a safe way to store your um, garments as well. But what, April, you made a good point about materials in clothing. Materials can be the garment's own worst enemy, Mm -hmm. um, especially plastic. Yes. You don't ever want to store anything in plastic. um, And you don't really want to store plastic either. It's one of those really tricky materials because it off-gases. And if you're encasing it in a box, um, you're actually doing more harm.
1: Yeah, you're trapping all those toxic gases in. And that's just going to make... Whatever is inside, like, degrade faster. Um, And I forgot maybe one of the most basic things, which I would like to mention, which is um, besides keeping it out of sunlight, one of the other best things that you need to do is to keep those textile-based objects in um, a stable environmental condition. Mm -hmm. So temperature and humidity are huge factors in this. So I know that a lot of us store things in the basement right yeah, and especially a, and i am totally guilty of this i have pretty significant uh selection of vintage in my basement right now but that being said my basement is temperature and
0: humidity controlled so and that's especially important for you know natural fibers silks and wools which are prone to infestation yeah
1: so well, you don't you don't want the temperature and the humidity to like spike or lower a lot you want to keep it as stable as possible. Mm-hmm. So I think that's our last tip. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so um anything else um fashion history um worthy conversation ah, worthy um in your I don't world this know. week? I'm trying to think. Uh, well I am um, in love with all of the streaming fashion history options um available now it's kind of like a rabbit hole that you can go on so on amazon i just discovered this documentary it's been out since 2013 so um it's new to me but not new it's called the man who shot beautiful women and it's about the fashion photographer erwin blumenfeld oh yes um, we have some of his original works in special collections yeah he is he is kind of the bad child of um fashion photography or however you want to say it but L'enfant he's not doing, terrible. yeah the enfant terrible um he's he's kind of throwing all tradition out the window and so he's german born and he was he's a jewish photographer who grew up in germany had a family in germany wait and then when was he born because this is an interesting thing right here to me in I terms of like born in the 1890s okay. i know there's a really quick way for me to check that but um 1897. Okay. He died in, in 1969. So his family. So he raised a family, and then I think he moved to Paris. I can't remember the exact order, but him and his um oldest daughter actually even went to an internment camp during World War II. Yeah, that's why I was asking. <laughs> yeah, they got like, out hmm. and they fled. They fled. He was able to take his family and flee to America. Wow. Um, I think they arrived in 1941. And so he was a photographer before this, but he really turned to fashion photography. He had made connections in Europe. So he came, I think he came to Carmel Snow, Harper's Bazaar, editor-in-chief, and came to her. um, And he started doing fashion photography as a way to support his family. And he was a radical. He was influenced by Dadaism and surrealism, and he really just turns convention on its head in a pursuit of the provocative and the beautiful and he's doing it in fa- within fashion, which I find amazing. So he's experimenting with all these photographic techniques such as multiple exposure, solarization, photo montage. He created some of the first fashion films in which he's just fashioned as a character in a broader narrative. So he's really one of these, the most innovative photographers of the 20th century. And he's innovating within the field of fashion photography, which is just incredibly. Fascinating, and I highly recommend The Man Who Shot Beautiful Women. Oh, well, I have not seen this, so I'm going to put it in my queue. Yeah, and there's so many documentaries out there. I would love to hear from our listeners about what um, documentaries they've seen lately.
1: Okay, can I just talk about something that is not a documentary? Yes. I've been watching the Versace.
0: Oh, my gosh. Wow. (laughs) I do, as a rule, I do not do American crime, um, but obviously... This this I was making an exception for this one.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to the story, and this is highly fictionalized and all of that, but I have to say that all of the actors in this,
0: I'm totally blown away. Yeah, Ricky Martin, are you kidding me?
1: <laughs> and Penelope <laughs> Cruz plays Donatella. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, everyone in this is spectacular. So if you have an inkling to watch a little bit of a dark flick, that also has a fashion history bent, um, turn into, what's the technical name of it? American Crime. I think it's
0: American Crime. Yeah. Versace something. <laughs> it's on Netflix, right? Yeah, it's on Netflix. Sorry, guys. I mean, we
1: primary source stuff for you all the time. Sometimes the assassination. We, <laughs>
0: assassination sometimes assassination we of forget Versace.
1: Yeah, the assassination yeah. of Johnny Versace.
0: So, uh, American Crime Story. So, of course, Johnny Versace was tragically killed in front of his home, and I think it kind of uncovers or attempts to uncover um, the
1: the whole story behind it.
0: Yeah. So, anyway. but okay. Well, again, this was fun. Always lovely to chat with you about all things fashion, history, mystery, fashion, history, mystery. Please write to us with all of your fashion, history, mystery inquiries. We love to hear from you. You can write to us at. Dressed at iHeartMedia.com. And we will catch you all
1: next Tuesday for a full-length episode.